We help Christians become thinkers, and thinkers become Christians. I'm Keith Kendricks. Our normal co-host, Dr. Michael Arrakis, is enjoying a holiday party with his office staff, so he cannot be here tonight. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about uh, a movie on the Internet, probably the most watched item on the Internet, called The Zeitgeist Movie, has over 100 million, approaching 150 million hits. Parts of it have been broken up and and are seen on YouTube, and those have 2, 3, 4 million hits each. I think one of them even has 8 million hits. But the movie itself apparently has had over uh, 100 million hits, and it talks about how Christianity is just made up. Apparently, I didn't know that until I saw the Zeitgeist movie, but a lot of people are watching it. So we'll be talking about that today and a little bit of news item on global warming that Josh was just talking about in his show. We're going to be adding a few uh, news item points on that, too. If you'd like to call in, the number is 609-398-1020, the Evidence for Faith show. Well, One of the items that we're going to be covering on the news is about global warming. And Ann Coulter had an article about it. Uh, She's a spicy writer on on the right side of the political spectrum. She talks about the fact that this University of East Anglia's Climate Research Unit, codenamed CRU, wow, uh, was caught manipulating data on the Earth's temperature. Surprise, surprise. This came from recently leaked emails. And in those emails, they just openly admit that they were using tricks to hide the decline in the Earth's temperature recently. As you know, there's been a lot of data out there that the temperature of the Earth has been increasing over the past few decades. And that seems to be corroborated. But What hasn't been corroborated is that the last eight years or so, the temperature has actually been declining, and this doesn't seem to fit in with the models that they have been uh, touting so much. So they talk about tricks that they're using to hide the decline in Earth's temperature. Uh, So she, of course, takes them to task in her uh, blog. Here's one quote. It says, We can have a proper result, but only by including a lot of garbage. Okay, so they're gonna they're gonna get the result that the that they want, but only by including a lot of garbage. The uh, leaked emails by these scientists uh, engaged in one in one section what appears to be possible criminal effort to delete their own uh, emails in response to a freedom of information request. So there's all of these emails show pervasive fraud and this CRU, this climate research unit, has been incredibly influential in the news, uh, being quoted consistently by the New York Times, Washington Post, and uh, sending experts around to news organizations to get their message out. They've also received more than $23 million in taxpayer money to work on global warming. 
So one of the things that these emails revealed was that the some of their data has been irretrievably lost. So they apparently were manipulating the data and uh, touching it up so much that they actually lost the original data. So now we have only their touched up versions of the data and the actual raw data that someone else could look at is gone. Uh, one of the other things that was incredibly scandalous and disturbing was that uh, they were caught conspiring to kill the careers and reputations of other scientists who disagreed with them and um, talking about how indignant they were that some scientific journals were publishing papers that were skeptical of global warming. Uh, so th the reason I'm mentioning this, I mean, you know, okay, what does this have to do with evidence for Christianity? It goes to the idea of believing something because an authority tells you, okay? And typically what's done today is people will say, well, scientific consensus tells us that the Bible is wrong, or scientific consensus tells us that intelligent design isn't true, or scientific consensus tells us that evolution is how uh, life came to the earth. So this is an example of scientific consensus. Scientific consensus tells us that the Earth is warming and that it's caused by mankind. But now we see how they get to consensus. They get to consensus by brutalizing those who disagree with them, threatening their jobs, conspiring to hide the data, cherry-picking data, and that's exactly the kind of thing that we have seen in other realms, including science about evolution. There's a, there was a terrific article in World Magazine. I've talked about uh, the quality news reporting that you get from World Magazine. And there was an article in the latest issue by Timothy Lamar, or Lammer, I guess, where he calls it Climate Gate, the scandal. And he talks about three of the most egregious things that happened with the discovery of these leaked emails. One is the manipulation of data, and, and, and the data often ap apparently was very poor data. So we've got manipulation. Here's an example. This is the director of the unit, the climate research unit discusses a trick that he used to, quote, hide the decline in some of the temperature readings. And in another lengthy document, a computer programmer for the unit laments, quote, about the hopeless state of our database, which, close quote, which was riddled with false information and guesswork. Quote, it's a botch after botch after botch. And then in another emailer, uh, by the name of Chemist Truebirth of the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Colorado. Now, remember that even though this unit was in uh, Great Britain, they were emailing universities and climate research centers all over the world. Uh, it, he talks about how the data shows, an, uh, or that he this email shows his intense desire for the science to produce a specific result. Quote, 
The fact is that we can't account for the lack of warming at the moment, and it is a travesty that we can't. So here's this guy admitting his bias, saying that he desires to show a certain out, outcome. Why? Because it fits his political agenda. Okay, the second thing they point out is that there were attempts to skirt the British version of the Freedom of Information Act. In an email, the director Jones writes to a Penn State climate scientist by the name of Michael Mann about two critics who have been dogging him attempting to obtain this, the uh, unit's weather station data. He says, quote, If they ever hear there is a Freedom of Information Act now in the UK, I think I'll delete the file rather than send it to anyone. Close quote. Wow. And then in another email, um, which was enti entitled IPCC and FOI, meaning Freedom of Information Act, and IPCC is the UN Organization for Climate Control or Climate Change, uh, he says, he discusses with this uh, Penn, Penn State scientist uh, that, uh, let's see, the emails regarding the UN report and asking uh, that he wants them to delete their emails and to ask other scientists to do the same thing. So the CRU now says that uh, it threw out some of its raw temperature data, so now it's impossible to check their work. So nobody can go back and see what they adjusted and what they didn't. And then finally, the point in the World Magazine article mentions is that there was a manipulation of the peer review process to freeze out critics. And in one email, this Director Jones discusses some critical research. He says, quote, I can't see either of these papers being brought to the next UN IPCC report. Kevin and I will keep them out somehow, even if we have to redefine what the peer review literature is, close quote. Wow, now that is scary. Several emails showed that he and others discussed ways, including a boycott, to pressure journal editors not to publish articles by skeptical scientists, quote, I will be emailing the journal to tell them I'm having nothing more to do with them until they rid themselves of this troublesome editor. So unless the guy, unless this editor is fired, they're not going to send some uh, material to that journal. That's the kind of pressure that a supposedly open-minded scientist is putting on the supposedly peer-reviewed journal literature to try to get his point across. There's a one of the uh, atmospheric physicists by the name of Fred Singer joked after he had found out about the emails. He says, we have realized that global warming may be man-made after all. Meaning that, yeah, the scientists made it up. Not that it's global warming is caused by man's emissions of CO2. So you have to be very careful about listening to the scientific consensus. And this is not just the only example of this. Uh, if you go back not that far in history, you come to the eugenics movement. 
which was incredibly dangerous idea that man could manipulate his progeny and do forced sterilizations and uh, other things to try to control his evolutionary growth through time. And this uh, wound up hurting a lot of people. This movement was totally sponsored by the scientific community, and many uh, prestigious universities were fully behind the eugenics movement until, of course, uh, World War II, when Hitler made it look so bad that they had to back off. Another, I just made a list of just thinking of some of the other examples uh, that the scientific community wants you to believe, but it's politically motivated. And you have to be careful. Anytime an authority tells you something, you've got to check it out yourself, including me. If I tell you that this is what these emails contained, you really ought to look it up yourself and check out what I'm saying because I can be wrong. I have a political bias too. I have a religious bias. So you've got to make sure that what I'm telling you is the truth. Fortunately for you, one of my biases is that I'm totally devoted to the truth and wouldn't lie even to advance my cause because I want the truth myself. All right, what's another example of the scientific consensus being wrong? Well, you hear these days, past probably several decades, saying that it's harmful to spank children. Okay, now, well, you think, oh, I've seen scientific studies. They've been published in the newspapers that that's true. And yes, you do. What do you see? You see a study where they looked at children under the age of two, okay? If you spank a child under the age of two, their behavior doesn't get any better. It tends to get worse, all right? I'll give you that, under the age of two. Then they'll do studies where they do older children above 12 years old. And if you spank those children, their behavior also tends to get worse. What they don't tell you is that those same studies show that if you spank children between the ages of two and six, their behavior gets much better. After about the age of six, it levels off to where there doesn't appear to be uh, much improvement, and then when you get to about the age of 12 and above, it gets worse. So what they do is cherry pick the data. You have to actually look at the raw data yourself and see what they're leaving out, what the newspapers leave out of the studies. Here's another area where uh, the scientific experts uh, have it wrong for a political purpose, and that is uh, they'll say early education helps children, right? Pre-K, there's a big push these days for preschool education and pre-K education. Guess who's pushing this? Well, the people whose jobs depend on there being more and more pre-K education. What do the studies show? The studies, if you look at the raw data, the studies clearly show that pre-K and even early K and young uh, childhood education is harmful to children, that it lasts well into uh, college age, that they perform worse in college than those who did not have these pre-K, K-12 
kindergarten and early education programs. So how do they do it? They cherry pick the data and they set up studies where they'll compare, say, first grade to second grade. So if you give, or if you give, um, uh, let's say, where they compare kindergarten to kids without kindergarten, uh, yes, in first grade, those who didn't go to kindergarten will not do as well as those who did go to kindergarten because they were taught the same thing. So if they're taught the same thing over and over, of course, those who did have those lessons before did better. Wow, that's not a surprise. But that's the kind of data that they show you and then say, see, you ought to be sending your child to kindergarten. You ought to be sending your child to pre-K. And the reality is if you extend out the studies and look at those kids for five, six years later, they start to do much worse because they've had an abnormal developmental period. So when a child is developing and should be uh, at home playing and developing mentally until he's to the point where he can uh, take an institutional setting of learning, um, they do actually worse. Here's another one. Uh, you're, you hear places like uh, National Geographic will tell about how the DNA studies that they're doing with um, populations, different tribes around the world are showing that how the humans, uh, human beings spread across the globe. And we've talked about this in past shows. And they will say that it shows that the earliest DNAs, the earliest human DNAs came out of Africa. But if you look at the raw data, it's not so. The raw data shows that the earliest and most uh, uh, diversified uh, DNA is actually in the Middle East and gets declines as it goes into Africa. So the actual data shows that human DNA spread out from the Middle East into Africa, into Europe, into Asia, and not the other way around. But uh, again, what they'll do is cherry pick the data, pick out only those parts of the DNA that seem to sh match their theory, and leave all the rest, the majority, uh, aside because it doesn't fit their theory. So anyways, we could go on and on. There's tons of reasons that, uh, tons of areas that you can look at and show that the scientific consensus is wrong. So you just have to be careful. You have to, really, you have to look at that, at it yourself. And this really also applies to the religious uh, area as well. If you have a religious authority telling you what you ought to do, how you ought to live your life, and how you're going to get into heaven, well, guess what? When you're standing before the judgment seat of God, where's that authority going to be in case he's wrong? He isn't going to be there. You're going to be there by yourself, standing before your creator. And it's not going to do any good to look around and say, uh, well, my priest told me, or my pastor told me, or uh, my shama told me, that's not going to do any good. It's up to you. You've got this life to get it right. 
So stay tuned, listen to Evidence for Faith, and we'll help you get it right. You're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. You can catch us on the internet at evidenceforfaith.com. That's the number four, evidenceforfaith.com. If you'd like to call in, it's 609-398-1020. And today, Josh has kindly decided to help us with the sound today. So we'll, I'll be making him do some work here later when we get into the Zeitgeist movie. Okay. I mentioned two weeks ago, I think it was, about this new website, StandForChristmas.com, and I think that's a great idea. This is a way that you can register your opinion on what you think of different retailers and how they're handling the Christmas season. So if you like the fact that people are saying Merry Christmas to you at a certain store, you can register on StandForChristmas.org and tell your experience, and they're actually ranking them. So you can look it up right now. You can go to standforchristmas.com and take a look at who is friendly to the Christmas season, who is negligent, and who is offensive to Christmas. Well, I made a list, and friendly retailers to Christmas, Bass Pro Shops, Cabela's, Land's End. So far, the top three, they all seem to have something to do with camping and outdoorsy stuff. So I'm not sure. I guess they're appealing to the hunters uh, in the uh, out there. Then comes Kmart and Sears, kind of your all-American uh, retail stores. So next is uh, the negligent category. So apparently, Lane Bryant is the uh, most negligent retailer out there for Christmas. Apparently they haven't figured out that it's the Christmas season yet. Then you have the offensive category. Now, the last time I mentioned it, two weeks ago, Banana Republic was number one in offensive uh, behavior towards Christmas, but they have moved now back down to third place, and in the lead is Gap, and second is Best Buy. So they are apparently advertising or doing something that people consider offensive to the Christmas season. So there's a place that you can register your opinion and uh, take your shopping elsewhere. Okay, we're going to get into a couple of topics that I went, as you know, maybe two weeks ago, if you listened, I went to the Evangelical Philosophical Society meeting down in New Orleans, and it was a terrific chance to, um, you know, rub shoulders with some of the the uh, top professors and authors in the field and listen to them lecture and read papers. And so there was a lot of really good uh, information that I got. So we're going to talk about one of the talks. Since I mentioned the Zeitgeist movie, I think we'll... Let me jump to that talk, because that is pretty interesting. And even though 100 million people have listened to the Zeitgeist movie, I know there's going to be a lot of you out there who have not heard of it. And you're actually better off, because this is... This is... You know... I, it's almost embarrassing to try to refute something like this because it's so bad that 
it doesn't deserve to be refuted. Uh, it, you know, it's like, in, in fact, part of the movie, the, the Zeitgeist movie, is not only about how Christianity was made up. It is also about other conspiracies. Uh, it's about how the uh, 9-11, uh, the towers came down, that was done by the U.S. government. Uh, you know, so the, these people are really whacked out. Um, there's also a uh, portion on how the, I think it's the Treasury Department, is a, a evil uh, monster that wants to take over the world. Now, that may be true or not, but judging by the first two conspiracies, um, I wouldn't believe anything else these people have to say. So, um, I think, Josh, have we got a little clip of... of um, the Zeitgeist movie that can we can give a sample of of the kind of thing that they say in the Zeitgeist movie. Yeah, okay, we're ready. It is important to note that dark versus light or good versus evil is one of the most ubiquitous mythological dualities ever known and is still expressed on many levels to this day. Broadly speaking, the story of Horus is as follows. Horus was born on December 25th of the virgin Isis, Mary. His birth was accompanied by a star in the east, which, in turn, three kings followed to locate and adorn the newborn savior. At the age of 12, he was a prodigal child teacher, and at the age of 30, he was baptized by a figure known as Anup, and thus began his ministry. Horus had 12 disciples he traveled about with, performing miracles such as healing the sick and walking on water. Horus was known by many gestural names such as the truth, the light, God's anointed son, the good shepherd, the lamb of God, and many others. After being betrayed by Typhon, Horus was crucified, buried for three days, and thus resurrected. These attributes of Horus, whether original or not, seem to permeate many cultures of the world, for many other gods are found to have the same general mythological structure. Attis of Phrygia, born of the virgin Nana on December 25th, crucified, placed in a tomb, and after three days was resurrected. Krishna of India, born of the virgin Devaki. I think that's good enough, Josh. That that gives you the a, a feel for this movie. Um, it one of the things it does is tries to convince you just by throwing data at you. That's one way that they try to convince you that they're right. Is that they just over and over, and it's just point after point after point after point after point. They don't try to give you a point and then establish it with evidence or give you any kind of reference. Now, they do at the end of the movie, they give you some references, but we'll talk about that. Um, but they, uh, one of the ways that they try to convince you that they're right is by just data overload. And then you get the feeling that... Um, well, it must be right. I mean, look at all the data. I mean, I mean, think about it. Even if they're wrong about some of the things, and some of the things you will know are wrong because just from just the general population, you're going to have heard about uh, Egyptian myths. You might have read a book about them maybe when you were in grade school or high school or in college. And so you'll know a little bit about it. And so you'll hear some parts of it and you'll say, oh, well, I know that part's not wrong, not right. But then you don't know all the rest of it, and so you think, well, gosh, even if some of it is wrong, all the rest of it must be right. And, you know, uh, I tell you, um, before I became a Christian, I was a really good liar. 
And one of the techniques that I used to use was to add, make up the story very detailed. Okay, so if I started telling you, just imagine if I sat down to the microphone today and I told you that, um, you know, say I was late, the show started late. Oh, yeah, I got a flat tire. Well, you know, if I left it at that, I got a flat tire. Oh, yeah, that's why I couldn't make it to the show. You know, um, you probably go, hmm, I wonder if that's true. That doesn't really sound true. I mean, how many people get flat tires these days? But if I gave you this detailed description of how, yeah, I heard this thumping and I didn't know what it was and I noticed the car was acting a little funny and so I, I adjusted my rear view mirror and on the side, my side mirror and I looked down, sure enough, oh, I got a flat tire. So I pulled over and blah, 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 blah. Do you see what I'm saying? If I just add a lot of detail to it, it sounds as if it's true. Well, of course... Either one of them could have been a total lie. Just because I add a lot of detail to it doesn't make it true. And that's the, one of the techniques that they use in this movie. They just bombard you with details. Unbelievable. But they also do a lot of other, I mean, things that are funny. Um, they, For instance, they talk about the sun and how people through uh, generations and eons of time have worshipped the sun. And then they start in the dialogue, they start calling it God's son. Okay, so now they're saying, now they're saying that people worship God's son, and then they show you a picture of a cross and and how people now are worshiping God's son, as if God's son, as if the son S U N was somehow related to S O N God's son in Christianity because they sound the same even though they're talking about uh, Egyptian mythical gods. And guess what? They didn't talk English. They didn't speak English. So there is no connection, S-U-N, the sun, to Christianity's God's son, S-O-N. I hate to break it to you. They just kind of go, God's son and God's son. Wow. Boy, there must have been a conspiracy. Well, this movie was uh, put on the internet in June of 2007 by, and the narrator and uh, uh, producer is a man by the name of Peter Joseph, although this turns out this is only a pseudonym, uh, Peter Joseph, and it's had over 100 million viewers so far. And their, their whole, the whole thesis is that Christianity is a copycat religion, uh, that it copies from uh, all these... Um, Eastern mystical ideas and mystery religions of the Greco-Roman time period and the Egyptian time period. Now, the sources for this, this is actually a lot of this stuff is uh, the same kind of stuff that Dan Brown uses in his uh, fictional stuff where he also pretends that these uh, fictions are real, and he makes footnotes into his in his book to make you think that these are real, and the footnotes themselves are fake; they're just made up. Um, but there there are some people out there who are pushing this concept. One of them's a, a lady by the name of Dorothy Murdoch, and apparently this Peter Joseph used a lot of her material to. Um, uh, to make his video. And and it's a very, you know, it's a 
well done. It's a you know it, it's not um, Hollywood production style, but for a, an internet video, it's fairly well done. All right, so for those who just joined us, this is Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks, and you can reach us at 609-398-1020 if you'd like to join the conversation. So they go through a lot in this movie Zeitgeist. They go through a lot of these different mystery, religion, and historical gods, and they make comparisons. Like they'll say he was born of a virgin, born on December 25th, turned water into wine, was crucified, had 12 disciples, on and on and on. Just as many types of matches as they can possibly uh, get away with. Uh, and, and even then, they don't really get away with it because it only takes a few minutes to figure out that this is all, um, uh, m- uh, most of it is all made up. So, um, so some general comments. Now, and if I uh, didn't mention this before, this comes from a class that I attended a couple of weeks ago before Thanksgiving by a, a professor, associate professor of philosophy and religion at Liberty University, Mark Foreman, who did a terrific job uh, detailing some of these, these pointers. Well, one general comment that Professor Foreman made is that this whole theory rests on the idea that Jesus and Paul and the apostles did not exist, okay? Uh, their claim is that Christianity is simply made up out of whole cloth, that it's just a copy of these ancient mystery religions. There was no Jesus, there was no Paul, so all of the historical and archaeological evidence that's there that supports uh, the Christian faith and the Christian history, um, all of that counts against this movie, because in the movie they, they believe that none of that is true. So all of the historical and archaeological findings uh, show that this movie is completely wrong. Also, uh, this really isn't a new idea. Uh, this is an old idea, and it used to be called the History of Religions School, and that was popular in the 19th, late 19th, early 20th centuries, and it basically died out because there simply was not enough support for it, and there was too much evidence that this uh, view of how modern religions came about is just false. So what they do is they they look at the similarities between um, religions and they create this um, copycat theory by lo- concentrating on the similarities. Well, religions, by the mere fact that they are religions, have similarities. For instance, they have a god or gods. Um, they have certain rites or certain ceremonies that are part of that religion. Um, they have a purpose. Uh, they deal with uh, topics in the world like uh, evil and suffering. So, of course, they are going to have uh, similarities, but that doesn't mean that they were copied from each other. Uh, then, thirdly, one of the points is that there is this logical fallacy called the false cause fallacy. And what they're saying is that because A occurred before B, all right, because this old god, say Osiris, occurred before Jesus, then A caused B, or Osiris, the religion, caused the religion 
of Christianity. And it's kind of like the uh, silly person who says, well, I knew it would rain because I just washed my car. You know, as if washing your car had something to do with the environment and actually caused it to rain. So they're, they're making a logical fallacy and trying to get you to believe it just because one religion came before another means that it had to have caused the other religion, and that's simply not true. That's a logical fallacy. Um, okay, so let's take a look at uh, some of the specific problems with uh, this, this movie, this uh, anti-Christian movie. First is, one of the errors they make is what's called the generalization uh, error. So what they do is they try to combine all these different aspects of these different religions into a single uh, a kind of uh, cookie cutter that they can then say, look, all of the religions were stamped out of this single cookie cutter. But in order to do that, they have to heavily generalize. So, um, for instance, they'll look at an initiation and a purification rite of a certain religion, and they'll say, oh, well, that equals baptism. So when they say that this god or deity was baptized, that's what they mean. They mean that he went through some kind of initiation ceremony. Not that he was actually baptized, like we would consider baptized. So then they generalize and use the same word to mean all these different uh, initiation purification rites. Um, Even though, if you look historically, all these different rituals all developed separately and independently, but they want you to think that they all came from a single source. Then there's a a terminology error where things like uh, ritual baths, because there's water involved, that means that's a baptism. Uh, One of the examples is that mythologically, Osiris was cut up into a bunch of people, pieces. So he's cut up into a bunch of pieces, and three of the pieces are thrown into the River Nile. There you go, baptism. See, Osiris was thrown into the River Nile, so that's baptism. Well, no, it's not baptism. Uh, ceremonial feasts, that they call communion. Um, if there's a god that had sex with a human being, they call that a virgin birth. Uh, if one of the gods was murdered, what do you call that? Crucifixion. After all, crucifixion is a form of murder, right? It's a legal murder. So if there was a god that was murdered, they'll say he was crucified. Uh, if this god, then after dying, went to live in an afterlife, like Hades, what do you call that? You call that resurrection, because it's a kind of a life after death. Uh, If he's a deity, what's another name for a deity? A messiah. So they'll say he was a messiah. Um, If people believed in him and followed that religion, what do they claim? They're disciples. So they'll say, oh, he had 12 disciples. Well, he really had 12,000 or 12 million followers, but they say, well, if you have 12 million, then you had 12, because 12 million is more than 12, so he has to have 12 disciples. 
then they make um, biblical errors. One of the funny things that you'll see, and this just really made me smile, was that they keep mentioning that these gods had these birthdays of December 25th. Oh, wow, December 25th, why? That's when we celebrate Christmas. Why, Christianity must have copied that. Well, guess what? December 25th is not mentioned in the Bible. In fact, one of the earliest mentions of when the birth of Jesus is comes in about the year 200 uh, by Clement of Alexandria, and he records it as May 16th. It's not until the 3rd or 4th century that we decided to make December 25th celebrate Jesus' birthday because that was when they were already using it to worship other gods. So guess why? That's why there's a connection there between December 25th and these other gods. Uh, then there's uh, they, they make references to the three kings, and so they do a big thing about three kings. But again, this is a biblical error. It does not say in the Bible that there were three kings. So even though there may be a mystery religion in which there were three nobles mentioned, that has no correspondence to Christianity because that's not in the Bible. So you've got the uh, generalization error, the terminology error, biblical error, then the chronological error. Now, what this is about is that many of these mystery religions that they refer to developed over a long period of time, including they were continuing to develop well after Christianity had started. So Mithra and uh, Krishna, Krishna in India is a good example. Um, the the um, holy writ for that religion was not finished, not completed being written until the 7th century. So, and we know that the Apostle Thomas went to went himself to India to spread Christianity. So, what is very likely is that the competing religions saw the popularity of Christianity and absorbed it into their own views, just as we know that the um, mystery religions in the Mediterranean region absorbed many of the ideas of Christianity into their religions because Christianity had become so popular and they were losing their adherence, which was a big moneymaker for them. And this is where you get things like the Gospel of Thomas and other Gnostic writings because they were trying to attract Christians into their fold. So in reality, a lot of the uh, similarity comes from these mystery religions borrowing from Christianity and not the other way around. So there's no uh, dependence on um, actual evidence. Um, they also have to, they don't consider the fact that uh, the situation in Judea in the first century was that there was no syncretism at all. The uh, Jews did not permit any kind of mystery religion to exist. There was no one, uh, no Jewish person in Judea would ever have uh, been uh, worshiping uh, any kind of mystery religion. Um, they would have been stoned to death. And so 
the mere fact that Christianity came out of this first-century Jewish uh, environment shows that it did not, it was not influenced by these mystery religions. Then there's the source era. Uh, they did not. There's an, if you look at the movie and you look at the references that they give, there are no primary sources, none. Now, primary source is the actual text. So it'd be maybe the Egyptian Book of the Dead, for instance, the actual text of the, the Book of the Dead. There is no reference to any primary source. What they do, there are 45 citations at the end of this movie that have to do with this, uh, the Christianity part of it. Those 45 citations only mention 15 sources. So there are only 15 sources. 60% of those 15 sources have been completely discredited. They are just junk. Uh, they are not held by any person with a um, uh, in an academic uh, setting. Um, and those 15 sources are all secondary sources. So that's the source error. And then there's uh, the purpose error. These mystery religions, they're all uh, cyclical. They all think that life is in a cycle, that you have um, winter and summer, and that uh, birth and death, and everything is cyclical. They were all based on secrecy. Uh, they were all based on this mystical experience that you could obtain um, by going through different rituals and paying fees to the priests. Um, so there was nothing, it, it, no similarity to Christianity in its concept of knowledge and its concept of being a historical uh, religion that is rooted through history, through the Jewish people, all the way back to the creation of the earth. And then uh, Professor Foreman from Liberty University gave a, a, an excellent example of how the Kennedy myth came from the Lincoln myth. And he went through this long list of similarities between Kennedy and Lincoln and about uh, how they were uh, uh, both shot, uh, you know, and then uh, where one, you know, the uh, assailant was caught in a warehouse and uh, on and on and on it goes, and he used their techniques. He made heavy generalizations. He goes through about 30 different points, and you're thinking, wow, I had no idea that that uh, Kennedy and Lincoln had so much in common. Well, of course, they don't. Uh, he used hasty generalizations. He used all these techniques that the movie uses to try to convince you that uh, Kennedy and Lincoln had a lot in common, and they really didn't, including making up things like that their secretaries had the same last name and on and on. So that, uh, that is the Zeitgeist movie, and that was the lecture from uh, Mark Foreman at Evangelical Philosophical Society in New Orleans. If you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. There's about 10 minutes left. If you want to chime in, uh, you can call us at 609-398-1020.
Well, I think I've got time to go over another uh, class uh, that I went to, uh, Dr. Timothy McGrew from the Department of Philo Philosophy at Western Michigan University, did a terrific talk that he called New Atheists, Old Atheists, and Old Apologists. And his point is that the arguments of contemporary atheists today, like Dawkins and Hitchens and others who've written these popular books on atheism, uh, that their arguments against Christianity are, for the most part, borrowed from atheists and free thinkers of centuries past, and that those arguments were answered already, and sometimes brilliantly, by apologists and scholars whose work is now largely forgotten, and that the history of apologetics is more than a field for you know the antiquarian uh, historical uh, view it actually provides a rich away, array of uh, arguments and insights that have contemporary relevance. So he mentions some of the views of some of the atheists. Here's here's some from uh, Richard Dawkins uh, that he published in 2006. He says that the Gospels were written long after the events they report. Well, guess what? That was stated by an atheist by the name of Strauss in 1835 and was completely refuted. Then he says, nobody knows who wrote the four Gospels. Again, a statement made by an atheist by the name of Paine, written in 1804, and again, completely refuted. Then he, Dawkins says, miracles by definition violate the principles of science. Sound a little familiar? You might remember that from your introduction to philosophy class in college. That was David Hume, 1748. <coughs> so his point is that um, if we look back, we'll find a lot of really interesting arguments for... Um, the support of the Christian worldview. Now, you can find this. Boy, I hope my voice doesn't go out. Josh might have to jump in here and talk about global warming again. <coughs> you can find some of this on historicalapologetics.org. I haven't been to that website yet, but that is the website for Dr. Timothy McGrew. Department of Philosophy, Western Michigan University. Now let's see if I can get into a couple of the evidences by William Paley. All right, four minutes. We'll see if we can do a good job on this. You know you've heard that the Bible is full of contradictions, and but if you actually look at the contradictions, they turn out not to be contradictions. Well, there's something that's the opposite of contradictions that proves that the Bible was written uh, as an actual uh, eyewitness account, and they're called undesigned coincidences. Now, an undesigned coincidence means that the person writing something left out a major fact because he assumed everybody knew it. Now, this can only be done by somebody who's telling the truth. If you're making up a story, then you don't know yourself pertinent facts, so, that you, so you know that other people aren't going to know those facts either. 
Here's an example of one. 2 Timothy 3.15 says, And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now that's talking about Timothy. This is a letter to Timothy from Paul. Paul says that Timothy knew from infancy the Holy Scriptures. Well, how can that be? Timothy was a Greek. He grew up outside of Palestine. How could he possibly have known the Holy Scriptures? Paul doesn't say, and it doesn't make any sense. But what we find is that Luke wrote in Acts 16, verse 1, it says, He came to Derbe and then to Lystra, talking about Paul, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. So now we learn from Luke that the reason Timothy knew the Holy Scriptures from his youth is because his mother was a believer and a a Jewess. So remember, there wasn't any New Testament Scripture. There was only the Old Testament at that time. So that's how Timothy knew the Old Testament. I think we've got time for one more here. This one's interesting. John 6, 5 and Luke 9, 10. In John 6, 5, Jesus, it says, Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him. And he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, this is a kind of odd statement. Think about it. Who is Philip? I mean, you know, there were 12 disciples, but the four Gospels concentrate on Peter, uh, on John, uh, maybe on James. So Philip is like a nobody. But all of a sudden, we get this, Jesus turns and says to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, that seems really strange. So when John is writing it, he seems to know something we don't know. Well, if you compare that to Luke 9, verse 10, it talks about where they were at that moment when they were, this is before the uh, miracle of the uh, loaves and fishes. It says, when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. Okay, so now we know they're in Bethsaida. Then if you compare that to John 12, 21, it says, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida. So see the undesigned coincidence that they don't mention that Philip was from Bethsaida. That's why Jesus turned to him and said, where can we find food here, pal? You've been listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Join us again next Sunday at 4 p.m. for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. I'm gonna go.